Welcome to Unburied Books, a podcast reading its way through the New York Review Books classics. Our book this week is Chess Story, written by Stefan Zweig and translated from German by Joel Rotenberg. It was originally published in 1943. The book's description reads, On a great ocean liner, the world champion of chess confronts a lawyer with a surprising talent for the game in a tense contest of wit and will. How the lawyer acquired his skill and at what terrible cost are the substance of a story in which, at the same time, quietly but unmistakably, the death knell of the Enlightenment is sounded. Hell yeah. Let's go. And this book was chosen by a guest, but they had to cancel for very understandable reasons. But to make up for it... We are going to play a little chess game, Dylan and I, Ah. live, live to tape. How are you feeling about our our match today? Well, you're a much better chess player than me. I've played one game in the last 15 years, and it was to you. So you're a real Dr. B. Well, Dr. B also obsessively studied popular chess games. You you obsessively studied chess? No, I didn't. Absolutely not. (laughs) Ugh. Okay. Do you want to do it now or? I think we should start. We can make some of our opening moves. So I'll, I'll be, I'm on white and you're on black. Everyone can follow along with our game if you want. And you can pull out a board and see how we move and stuff. <laughs> so I'll, I'll play um, I'll play D4. Uh, all right. I'm bad with the friggin' letters and numbers. What's this? F5? All right. C4. Okay. Knight to F6. I'm sticking to the F. <laughs> I feel safe here. I'll go G3. Uh, E3. E6, sorry. E6. <laughs> I'll go, uh, I'll take my white bishop out to G2. Oh, bringing out the bishop. Well, <laughs> I'm going to bring out my bishop too. Okay. To B4. And I believe that's a check. That is a check. Ha ha. That seems like a good place to stop. We'll come back to this in a second. Okay. So to tell you a little bit more about Stefan Zweig, he was born in 1881 into an affluent Viennese family. He was one of the most successful European writers of his time, sold a ton of books, was translated into many languages. But he was Jewish, and he fled Austria in 1934 because of rising fascism. And Oh, no moved around a little bit before landing in Brazil, where, tragically, both he and his wife took their own lives in 1941. So Chess Story was among his final works, and it was published posthumously. All right, I think I know what I'm going to do with your check. I'm going to go Bishop D2. I'll block. All right, well, I'm going to take you. Okay. D2 check again. All right, well, I'll take back with my knight. All right, that seems like a good place to stop again. This is stressful. Well, it seems like we, we, we both made a good opening. We had a Dutch opening. I'm sweating. I don't even know the names of... <laughs> everything has an A. They're like, oh, that's, a, that's an English opening. That's a Dutch opening. That's a this. How many are there? Oh, hundreds and hundreds. How do you... Do, do, do nations have to lobby in order to like get certain <laughs> openings? I, I wish they would. That would be pretty fun. I don't, is there an American opening? I don't know. What would be the most like obscure opening? Oh, God. I don't the know. The Lesotho block. Les- 
<laughs> the Lesotho, the Lesotho Gambit. The Lesotho Gambit. Yeah, that's pretty good. All right, so to talk a little bit about a, the cover art now, as we always do, the art on the cover of this book is called The Chess Game by Maria Elena Vieira da Silva. It was painted in 19- 1943. Yeah, same year as the book came out. Yeah, which is perfect. It's the same year. It's literally just called The Chess Game. It's like just like this is called The Chess Story. The full painting shows two figures seated at a chessboard with the world askew beyond their game, with the plain squares continuing into the background. It's it's quite hypnotic the way mm-hmm. the board and the tiles of the street look like chessboards and the, the, the distortion it creates. Mm-hmm. De Silva herself was an abstract painter who played with perspective in her work. Similarly to Zweig, she fled Europe at the outbreak of the Second World War and emigrated to Brazil. Amazing. I mean, between her style and biography, there's a fascinating overlap between the cover artist and the book's author. I think we just got to appreciate that. Indeed. Down to the year. The year, the country, the style. All right, we're going to continue with our game for a little bit. I guess. Is it my turn or yours? It's yours. Oh, okay. Knight to C6. Okay, you're attacking my pawn. I'll bring my knight as well to to block it knight to f3 from the g square. All right. Castle? Guess what? What? I'm castling. You're always just copying me. (laughs) Okay, d6. All right. Pawn d6. I'll do queen to b3. I'm going to do king to h8. Oh, you saw my queen got on your king's diagonal then. Trying to get out of the way. (laughs) All right. I'll get back on your diagonal. Queen to c3. Well, you ain't stopping me. E5. All right, that makes it a little harder on that diagonal for me. I'll go E3. I'll guard that pawn. A5. Wow. Good move. I'll go B3. All right, queen to E8. Awesome. I'll go A3. Okay, queen on the move again <laughs> to H5. Oh, I see what you're doing now. Okay. All right, things are getting a little heated. Let, let's back They're up good. a bit. Yeah. Woo. <laughs> Ooh, I, need change, I need to change of clothes. <laughs> Talking about this book will be a relief after actually playing chess. My mind needs a rest. Yeah, let's get to something lighter and easier, like Stefan's vibe. Like literary analysis. Yeah. Well, what'd you think of the book overall? I mean, this is a novella. It's a quickie. How many pages is it? Look it up. 84. <sighs> Easy peasy. That's how many what? moves it's going to take me to beat you. <laughs> 84. You think it'll take 84? I mean, that's a low estimate. I think I could take it like, I, I, I think this could end in 30 moves fewer than that. You're overestimating me. <laughs> Even though this book is short, when I put it down, I kind of like almost slammed it onto the desk that I was reading it on in just complete frustration because it was perfect. It was just mm. so... You were frustrated es- that it was perfect? Yes. It, it's so open, but mysterious and i i just finished it and i was like i can't believe what i read what was that i i i felt like i had experienced something in the divine almost it is a perfect story not one move is a blunder no no mistakes either no it's a perfect clean 84 pages i read it in one sitting and i read it in one sitting too you you brought home vietnamese food yeah. And you were like, time to eat. And I was like, uh, I have 20 pages left. 
you told me give me five minutes and you spent like another 20 minutes just like really soaking it in as you well, went. Well, I wanted to finish the book. But you really soaked it in. I wasn't soaking it in. You weren't soaking in Zweig's prose? His gorgeous prose. It's really beautiful. No, I wasn't, I wasn't savoring it. I was just flying through it. I can go back again and read it and I'm sure I would savor it more. But I was just like, I need to finish this. I mean, compared to everything else in the world going on at that time where you, the story could be taking place in the Holocaust or in World War II or under much more actual duress, I felt like this was just about the most intense thing and most important thing at the world in this moment was this chess game that was being played. Mm. And I, that was awesome. It, it has a tremendous momentum to it. It really does. It's impossible to put down. I was in the chess club because my dad forced me to be in elementary school, but I'm not a chess fan. I'm not like, oh, I would love to to click through a thing online of famous chess games from the past. You know, I mean, you are. <laughs> and probably a lot of NYRB fans are as well. <laughs> but no, I, I, I loved it. Do you know in chess notation where people that watch the game, if someone makes a move that's like brilliant, they'll put an exclamation point or a double exclamation point next to it? I, did, I didn't even know there was chess notation. Yes. I think if I read this book and I notated it as a chess game, there would be so many exclamation and double exclamation marks. Oh my God. There's a famous Morphe game where someone made such a brilliant move that people threw like money at the players like they were strippers wow like that's what i was like wanted to do with this book was just like holy crap i wanted to rain everything (laughs) i was like it's amazing it's amazing maybe i'll start throwing some stuff at you i'm gonna move my pawn out to h4 back to this back to this okay (laughs) all right h4 we're gonna have to bleep this Cassia. knight to g4 you're really starting to attack my king side. I don't Take like that. that. Take that. I'm. Okay. What do they call it? Developing the board. Yeah, you're. De- you, you've you've been pretty developed so far. Oh, you. You've never seen development like this. I'm gonna move my knight out to g5. I've definitely wanted my knight here for a couple moves now. Now it's head to head, knight to knight. Yeah. My bishop. He needs to to take a little walk around the block. <laughs> this small. It's a short walk. To Where's d7. he going? D7. Okay. <laughs> Okay, so you saw it open the attack for my bishop onto your knight, and you're guarding it now. Then yeah. Okay, okay. I'll I'll block the attack, but I'll attack your other knight with my pawn. I'll go uh, f3. Knight to f6. I'm. Yeah, run away, girl. I'm retreating. <laughs> I can't believe it's been 16 moves and neither of us have taken anything yet. We're so weak. No, come on. No, we gotta I, take. I I did take something. Did you? Yeah, I did. Oh yeah, we did. We we have taken. I forgot. I took. And None of us have lost a pawn well. yet. It's kind of incredible. All right, so I'll I'll I'll, I'll go a uh, pawn to f4. I'll guard my knight again. Take a pawn. Well, I'll take a cue from you and go pawn to e4. Ooh, crap! That's frustrating. That's really frustrating. I wanted to trade. You really don't want to trade. I have to be guarded. I have to be protected. All right, let's get this rook out. Rook. No. From the f square to d1. H6. Could you just leave my knight alone for one second? I don't think so. Now I'm turning into you. I'm going to have to run away with my knight. Beautiful horse that you have there. All right, that's running away. It's going to h3. D5. Okay. Let's pause here. Okay, I'm I'm a little stuck. This is a little bit of a confusing setup right now. All right, you're going to get into the meat of the discussion? Yeah, let's, let's get into the meat. It's Saturday, so I can eat meat again. So chess is a deeply symbolic game, clearly. 
Mm-hmm. It has been called the Royal Game and the Gentleman's Battlefield. Yeah. What do you think the significance of writing a story about chess at this point in history is? Well, I think it's an interesting place to start because this is a time where a gentlemanly affair, a fight between two equals in a a place of respect for one another Mm. is no longer real. Mm. As this is a time in which the Nazis are taking over, World War II is beginning, it's quite terrifying. And this is almost a very meaningless aristocratic duel that Mm -hmm. doesn't really have a place in the world anymore. And I think that has a really good representation, especially between the two main people playing the game. The two players themselves aren't also a sort of nobility gentleman. They're much more common and each have their own handicap in the learning of the game. And I think that's an interesting point Mm -hmm. as well for how it's set up. I mean, just to build off of what you were saying, chess is such a tight, clear-cut battlefield where you know exactly who your enemy is. It's like it's white against black. The rules of the game are very clear. Everyone starts with the same board. Right. And like you said, we're on equal terms. And when you're talking about the chess board, like people often talk about international politics as a chess board. Mm-hmm. You're talking about the World War II situation. It's absolutely not equal, right? Yeah. You have even within like the Axis and allied powers, you have elements within countries that are pro-fascist. It's very convoluted and complex. You have the Vatican exerting its influence in in different ways. Mm -hmm. You have governments claiming to be ignorant to things that they do know are happening. There's just multiple layers to it. Sure. It definitely seems like the game is a structural respite from like that sort of world that's Falling apart around them. Right. You could see how chess would be quaint compared to the reality. And also turn into something extremely important in a time when it really doesn't need to be. But also, I don't want to overstate the degree to which what happened in World War II was like a mastermind battle of wits. It was also just horrific violence and the most base... Yeah, just throwing bodies at each other at, at certain points. Yeah, the, the lowest form of engagement yeah. between opposites. And like, think about the way chess is talked about now of like people like, he's not playing 12-dimensional chess or... Chess is one of the biggest things that come into popular idioms, I think, at, at a certain point in our culture, at least in the English language. I was yes. reading something about how, you know, baseball has become a massive part of just the cultural language, at least in America. Yes. I think chess has also been something as well, if you're put into check. We we're going to trade pieces here. And it's it's something that's overtaken a culture in a way that is significant. In the same way that World War II language and imagery, we still reference it. You're very likely to say, oh, he's a Nazi. Yeah. He's a neo-Nazi. He's a fascist. And I do want to also mention in this sort of thing is when we're talking about chess at this point in history, there's two players that are regularly referenced throughout the book. And it's Alexander Alakine and Efrem Boyobov. And they were two Russian grandmasters about 20 years before the book is set. And 
they were Russian players during the Russian Empire. And after the Cultural Revolution of the Bolsheviks took over the country, they fled their home country to France, I believe. Mm. This reminds me a lot of how, I don't know if Zweig did this on purpose, but these are a lot of people that are fleeing their country after a, a populist revolution took over their governments mm. and head for waters they felt safer in. In similar ways, I, th- I thought that was interesting. Could he have chosen other equally prominent players who didn't have that background? Yeah, Lasker. Lasker could have, was probably one of the biggest German players, and he played. He was a world champion from 1894 to 1921, so that is peak of German Empire to the end of German Empire. And I believe he was always represented as the German champion. Because when um, Malachi and Boyabov fled, they became. I think they started playing under the French flag. They didn't even play under the the current Russian flag. Mm. Lasker is mentioned in here. It says he is mentioned, but they mentioned multiple games from Alakine. Alakine, Capablanca, Tartakower, Lasker, and Bogolyubov. Capablanca could have been as well. Capablanca is considered probably the best player of this generation, even though he held the world championship for less time. He was a Cuban player who, if you wanted to draw the closest connection to Shentovich as sort of this person that kind of came out of no... Savant. Yeah. To be, I'm really doing Capablanca a dirty one here because he was a great thinker and stuff in many other ways. But <laughs> he was someone like the great chess minds at this point in history were all just coming out of Europe because this is where people were able to pretend like, oh, we can play this grand game. We're such gentlemen. And he was kind of someone that came out of like, you know, the Western Hemisphere in a Latin American country and was like, I am just as good, if not better. Interesting. Okay. But yeah, I, I was surprised they didn't mention Lasker as much as the other two, as, as seen as he was the prominent German player and he probably would have been the most cultural overlap, at least with like Dr. B and our narrator. Well, it could have yeah. been intentional. A snub to the German master. I'd love to ask Zweig. I'll ask him in the next life. Let's jump it back into our game. So you moved D5 last. I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to put my knight on F1. I'm going to move my knight as well. But uh, backwards, <laughs> e7. Oh, very similar to the move I did. Okay, I'll go. Look, I'll go a4. I, you're better at this than me. I thought I was the one copying you. No, you're copying me. A4. The tables of turn. C6. Knight to c6. Okay, you're just going back to where you were before. I don't. I don't know. I'll. I'll put my rook on d2. What's going on here? B4. Knight to b4. I don't like that. You're getting it. You're. You're. you're in, yeah. <sighs> okay. My knight needs some exercise. All right, I'll go bishop to h1. All right. There's such a fascinating pawn structure going on right now. Um, I'm going to pull back my queen okay. to e8. I, this was unexpected. You're really attacking kingside, and now you're moving back to more central focus. I'll put my rook on g2. I got to make sure that things are okay on the home front. Fair enough. I'll put my rook on g2. All right, I'm going to take your pawn on c4. With your d-pawn? Yeah. Finally, we're getting into some trades. I'll do uh, my B pawn takes C4. My bishop takes your pawn on A4. Now we're getting it. Let's go. You're going to throw... Man. Don't mess with my bishop, Dylan. I won't. Don't mess. All right. I'm going to... Well, I won't. I'll move my knight to F2. Man, you really don't want me to mess with your bishop. Taking it back. Bishop to d7. Okay, cool. I'll move the other knight back out. I'll go knight to d2. B5. I like it. I like it. While I while I ponder my, my future. Okay. My five move plan. 
Do you want to stop here or do you want to go for a few more moves? Let's stop because my brain okay. is, is taxed. I felt like the, the writing style was very chess-like in the, in, the, in the idea that every sentence mm-hmm. was developing the board in some sort of strategic way. Did that come through for you? Yes, absolutely. Again, because of the shortness of the book, it has to be really yeah. tight. And again, building that really addictive, propulsive feeling. Mm-hmm. I mean, it gives you that same feeling of when you're deeply engrossed in a game and you just all of your attention is directed towards this one singular purpose. His writing creates that same feeling in the story. Yeah, that's a really good way to describe it. Which I think is exceptionally hard to do. And yet, the sentences still feel really luxurious. They do. They, they, I mean, they feel very gentlemanly in that sort of chess mindset. Yes, they feel very sophisticated. But there's also humor. And I got a deep sense of who the characters uh-huh. were. And the setting of either the boat or the, in flashback, the hotel room Mm -hmm. where one of the chess players is more or less incarcerated. Yeah. I had a reading that speaks to this. There is little reason to describe the game. It ended as it had to, in our total defeat, after only 24 moves. In and of itself, it was hardly surprising that a world chess champion had dispatched a half dozen average or below average players with his left hand. What was so depressing to us was the overpowering way in which Shentovich made us feel all too clearly that he was doing just that. He would cast a single, seemingly cursory glance at the board before each move, looking past us as indifferently as if we ourselves were lifeless wooden pieces. It was a rude gesture that irresistibly recalled someone averting his eyes while tossing a scrap to a mangy dog. With a bit of sensitivity, he could have drawn our attention to mistakes or bucked us up with a friendly word, in my opinion. But even when the game was over, this chess automaton uttered not a syllable after saying mate, but simply waited motionless in front of the board in case we wanted a second game. (laughs) I had already stood up, clumsy as one always is when faced with crass bad manners, in an attempt to indicate that, with the conclusion of this cash transaction, the pleasure of our acquaintance was at an end, at least as far as I was concerned. But to my annoyance, I heard the rather hoarse voice of McConnor next to me. Rematch! <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever played a game, I've, I don't know, against like a, some sort of master or grandmaster in chess? Yes, I, I believe I played some Russian grandmaster in, who came to my elementary school. Yeah, I... I... I remember playing in chess club in L. Maybe it was middle school at this point, and we got invited uh, grandmaster, and he, we played a simultaneous game. There was about twenty of us in the library, and he crushed me. And I was, I, I just, I felt so similar to that. Just like, <laughs> what's going on? Like, I, I, I know how the pieces move, but the way he like would move them, I was like, where did that come from? I remember going to a tournament that was held in my. It was in our elementary school cafeteria. And my dad took me and I think he could like kind of help, like your parent could help yeah. you maybe. He was like, we're going to do it. We're going to, we're going to win this. Cause he's so like yeah. positive and like amping me up. And I, I'm literally in the <laughs> first grade and I'm playing people in like the sixth sure. grade. I like lost in maybe the second round. It was Fair enough. humiliating. I'm sorry, Cassia. Which is how I anticipate feeling at the end of our game we'll see this has been a really fun one so far so this reading was also something that i wanted to read from and sort of the gentleman's battlefield idea 
I love, and, and this, have you seen The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp? No, I've wanted to. I need to show that movie to you. It's one of my favorites. But there's this great scene where our main character, he faces off with a German officer named Theo. There was a burst of words, a, a challenge to a duel, and these two people are going to kind of like fight for each other's, I think, superior's honor, basically. They're going to have a little uh, fencing match. And there's this really long buildup of them going through the rules, them sort of putting on the gear, them sort of looking at each other, mm. how they sort of set up and stand. And then just as they start fighting, the camera pulls away out of the room that they're playing and is like, we're not going to, that didn't matter. The, the fight happens, the mm. people are wounded, so on and so forth. Now they're in the hospital. And it's a bit like this, where he's like, you don't need to know how the battle happened. You know what happens. He beats us. What matters is sort of this idea of how mm. it's set up, how each person's interacting, McConnor going, rematch, and all this other stuff. And I like this idea of the board itself, the game itself is not what's important. It's how people interact around it and sort of the gentlemanly idea of it. Right. It's not the lifeless wooden pieces. It's the flesh and blood player that's sitting at the board. Exactly. And what, what brought them there? That's a great point. All right. Want to make a few more moves? No. But I will. Well, what I'm going to do is I'll go knight to d1. Okay. Interesting. Rallying your horses. I'm going to join your little uh, stable over <laughs> here and go knight to d3. All right. It's on. This is this has gone far enough. It's on. This has gone far enough. There's too many pieces here that I can attack. <laughs> no. That we can trade. No. There's too much. We're going to start trading. Okay. I, I, Rook, Rook takes a5. Okay. Rook takes pawn. I am just going to do a nice, gentle little B4. <laughs> a nice, gentle, you're going to put your little pawn to, like, stab me, my queen, with a, <laughs> with a pike? It's just a little one square. One little Oh, pawn. sure. Are you afraid of a pawn? You're afraid of a pawn? Can dog? always be afraid of pawns. Okay, this is, get, this is getting ridiculous. I'll take your rook. Rook takes, rook takes A8. This is carnage. Do what you want. Do, it, do what you will. Well... I mean, since you just left that for me, I'm going to take your queen. All right. Well, I'll take your queen too. B to C3. And I'll do rook to E8. Takes E8. Hot damn. Hot damn indeed. Good thing I castled. C2. Fair enough. You're trying to get your queen back. I'll take your other rook on F8. Now you're again in check. What are you going to do? Well, I really have no choice. Yeah, there's what? You, there's King to age 7 I'll go knight to F2. Do what you want. I know what you want. All right. Well, I hope you're ready for a coronation, Dylan. There you go. Pawn to C1, turned it to a, her royal majesty, the queen. Awesome. Okay. Well, that's that's a, that's a bit of a game changer. I couldn't figure out the best way to stop that, but I at least got a lot of material out of you. So... It ended on such a high point for me. Fair enough. So now we're going to go to our next question. Zweig was a friend of Freud, and this is discussed in the introduction by Peter Gay. Uh-huh. Uh, which I liked quite a bit. Oh, the introduction was great. Mm-hmm. He, he, stri he strived to incorporate concepts from psychoanalysis into his writing. Okay. And Peter, in the introduction, talks about how a lot of his works can be seen as almost like case histories. And I think that, uh, that carries over into this book as well. Yeah, this definitely still applies. It could, yeah, it could be a psychologist notes on somebody. Mm-hmm. What did you make of the character's psychology and the depiction 
of psychology. I thought it was fascinating because each person had a very different psychology to them. What came to mind for me, going back to the idea of history, like this political moment and psychology, there was an experiment developed in... 1961 okay published a few years later a famous political science well it's a social psychology experiment but it's it's frequently referenced in political science it's called the milgram experiment which took a bunch of people and it measured their willingness to obey an authority figure who told them to oh sure perform acts conflicting with their moral conscience yeah so they were told there was a person in another room and they were buzzing them. And even if like they could hear someone screaming in response to their buzzing, if someone in a lab coat told them to do it, they would just keep doing it. Yeah. And I believe this this experiment was redone in response to like Trumpism and, and Brexit. And people are more authoritarian now than they were then. Sure. But like this was a huge question that emerged in the wake of World War II. This book is being written in the heat of it. And I think it's so fascinating how literature will often, art will reveal what it usually takes science and scholarship, (laughs) like decades to codify. But art is just like always the first line of defense in a sense. Yeah. How do people respond to these political situations, to these power dynamics? How does a normal person cope? And that's a big question that faces Dr. B. Dr. B. Yeah, he's, he, he coped through the idea of like studying chess and like making that his obsession while he was trying to like forget everything else around him. And he's the heart of the book. He really is. You get presented with this one savant like chess mastermind mm-hmm. that you think everything will revolve around, but then he's actually moves out of the way, he slides out of the way like a little chess piece, and this other player comes forth yeah. and kind of becomes the star. And that's another way in which the book is strategic yeah. and surprising, like a game of chess. It's like a it's a revealed attack in chess. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I think there's an interesting dynamic with how McConnor sees mm. the world around him, which he, he's of someone of this wealth where he can sort of dictate to himself how he wants the world to revolve around him. And I think there's an interesting aspect of how he keeps on trying to get in again so he can have the status to say, oh, I played and maybe even possibly beat this guy. This is how he uses sort of his own psychology and the world's psychology to benefit itself more than anything. I love McConnor. He's a great character in the book. Yeah, I had a lot of thoughts on McConnor and the choice to make him Scottish because in the description on the back they describe the book as a death knell of the enlightenment Uh uh-huh yeah this could just be my personal bias but i went to university in scotland and so i was like forced to read a lot of uh (laughs) pro-scottish things about how you know scots invented the world and they started the enlightenment and like every good thing basically came from scotland of course and mcconnor is the bankroll character sure he's the rich dumb guy <laughs> who's id basically him being like i can't be beaten you know rematch who keeps everything flowing uh-huh. without his his pride uh-huh. his competitiveness the story wouldn't work no it wouldn't the choice to make him scottish have this like ruddy cheeked scotchman <laughs> 
playing a role in this like larger thing that is symbolizing the decline of an enlightenment ideal of the rational man of rationale conquering everything yeah I i found that very funny and again i think it likely intentional yeah that makes sense but also like the book has an almost it's almost like a Ocean's Eleven, <laughs> or so, a, a kind of a caper. It is a bit a of a caper, caper movie where where every character is a is an archetype. Yeah, God, I love the Ocean's movies. Is a psychological type. Yeah, that's true, and I think they all fit very well together in that sort of way as a puzzle or as a chessboard. Yeah, they're all a perfect team. Yeah, no one's skill set duplicates anyone else's. Mm-hmm. All right, you want to make some more moves? Yes, I'm ready. All right. Well, I know what I'm going to have to do. You put me in check promoting that queen. I'll block with the knight F1. All right. All right. I am going knight to E1. Attacking my rook, I see. Yeah. I just can't stay away. Okay. Well, I'll get the rook away. I'll go rook H2. Are you going to take one of my pawns? Indeed. Oh, no. Okay. Which one? Queen to C4. Okay. I'll go rook to B8. I'm going to put that on the open file there. Try to get some work done. All right. Well... I don't like that file. So uh, bishop to b5. That's an interesting block. Okay. Uh, Screw you, bishop. Interesting. (laughs) Interesting means I'm going to destroy you. Well, I took your bishop, but now you can take my rook. Yeah. Queen to b5. Your rook is mine. Yeah. I like that you got the queen away from the action a little bit. All right. So I'll go pawn to g4. Knight to f3. Check. (sighs) Okay. I'll take. With my bishop. Bishop takes f3. All right. I'm going to take your little bishop with my little pawn. <laughs> e to f3. Where did that come from? All right. Bishop take or pawn takes bishop on f3. I'll take your pawn on f5 with my g pawn. Queen to e2. I'm moving in. All right. Let's stop here. I need to think a little bit. Okay. Okay. I put the pressure on you. You did. This is good. This is a pretty good game. I'm up a pawn and a knight, and a rook on you, but you're up my up a queen. So it's pretty even, I would say, at this point, going into the end game. Everything is put onto the king's side, which is interesting. It is. The book leads up to an epic showdown between Shentovich and the world champion and Dr. B, who hasn't formally played a game in years. Decades, even. The champion was orphaned and deemed useless for any task besides <laughs> chess. Dr. B was a successful learned monarchist from Austria, more like Schweig. These two have strongly contrasting backgrounds, like white and black squares on the chessboard, you might say, that inform their approach to the game. How does this opposition reflect the board's themes? I think just burrowing down into all the stuff we've been talking about, these characters are the perfect embodiment of the situation Zweig finds himself in. The champion the number one yeah. player in the entire world is someone from no background, no yeah. no pedigree, who was taken in by some random villager who thought he was an idiot and was embarrassed by him. I, I uh-huh. love the his little origin story at the beginning. I love it. It's so good. He, he just watches his father figure, his guardian, play uh-huh. chess. And then one time the guy, for some reason, can't come to the chess game. So he's like, well, I'll just I'll play instead. And he dazzles everyone, wins every game. And slowly he just works his way up. He gets sent 
to higher and higher <laughs> figures of authority until he just conquers the entire world. And this fool, this buffoon, <laughs> is now leading the world in chess. And that kind of unexpected rags to riches rise really shows up the myth of the enlightenment or the enlightened man. Yeah, I think Dr. B is an interesting flip side where it's someone that has no formal education in chess, has no savant-like genius idea of how the moves work. This is just a person that has looked at the board a lot. He has read lots of books. It's, it, it is sort of the, more of that enlightened idea of you read a lot, you study, but he's never played. But Dr. B comes from a upper crust. Yes. Intellectual. He's the moral conscious of Austria. Yeah. He's a member of the opposition. He is taken by the Gestapo. And instead of going to a concentration camp, he goes into, which is an ingenious invention of Zweig's, this hotel. It's a concentration camp of the mind, yeah. not of the body. Yes, that's a good way to say it. He's in a hotel room with no books, no newspapers, no access to other people. He is isolated in pristine privilege. Yeah. He can still, you know, care for himself. He can still eat. He can still sleep, presumably on a nice fluffy bed <laughs> in comfortable surroundings. <laughs> He's not exposed to the elements. But he is driven to madness. Yeah. And in a way, it's almost worse. The prison of the mind is portrayed as an almost worse fate than the prison of the body. Yeah. And he also, he's called Dr. B. So he's this sort of nobody. Yeah. He's a doctor. So we know that he's more important than other people, right? He's a doctor. Mm -hmm. and, and yet he <laughs> is, he is no one. He's Mr. X. Yeah. And he steals a, a, a book of chess games that he studies. Yes. And I feel like you're better to describe this than me. Well, I, I, I think you just, you learn lines, you learn things people have done and seen how they worked out. I play regularly against a coworker of mine named Ryan. And when I was reading Chess Story, I described myself as a Dr. B player because I'm someone <laughs> who is not very good at chess, but has studied a lot of chess. So mm. when I play an opening and Ryan will respond with how the opening's supposed to go, I do really well because I set up myself in a way that's very book oriented. Mm. It's, book smart. So I know like if I'm using this opening, I'm set up in this way to attack in this specific way. Recently, Ryan's realized if he screws with my opening and does something that is completely off the book, but is still somewhat beneficial to him, that's worse for me because I don't <laughs> know how to respond to things like that. So I, I felt very sympathetic to Dr. B as sort of this person that like has studied this a lot, but he doesn't have that aspect where he can comprehend it in the way that Shenevich could. Yes, it's a classically trained chess player versus a natural player. Yeah, and the, the madness that you feel when you don't have something go according to the book is very real. I totally understand Dr. B in that way. Right. And in, in terms of how this speaks to the larger themes, history, politics, it doesn't go according to the book. Yeah. You can't just play the openings and you can study all you want. And that's, a, that's an advantage. 
but yeah. you have to play the game in front of you, not the game in your head, not the game you studied. Not the game of the past. Yes. And I think that comes to a real head at the end, and it's in a very fascinating way. Right. Talk about the game in front of us. I think yeah. I, I think I know what I need to do. Okay. I need to try to push up the board with my pawns. I'm not sure the best way I can get through your pawns, though, right now. But for now, I will go d5. The board is looking so empty now. I know. I'm moving my king to g8. Okay. I got to hide a little bit. My eagle's nest. <laughs> back here i'll go pawn to h5 oh okay what are you gonna do i'm gonna go from whence i came oh you're gonna go back king to h7 all right king to h7 all right you're gonna guard that pawn i'm gonna go e4 this this is a move that has to be played at a e4. certain point let's go right. e4 well look i'm going to e4 as well goodbye you're with take, my knight take with the knight yeah. All right. So now I'm going to take with my knight. I reveal attack oh, on your queen. Oh, 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 But you can also take my knight. All right. I'm going queen to e4. e4 is yeah, where you... it's all happening right now. That's interesting because e4 is like the most central square on the board that people go to. So mm-hmm. that's a beautiful uh, poetic nature. So I'm going to push the heart up of my darkness. pawn. I'm going to push up my pawn to d6. All right. I'm going to take your pawn on d6. Oh, it's getting really... Scary. I'm going to keep pushing. I'm going to go F6. And I will <laughs> take your pawn on F6. Uh, I'm going right, to track you down. I'm, I'm going to move my rook to D2. I'm going to try to attack that pawn. What are you going to do? Queen to E2. Oh, brilliant move. All right, I'll take I'm your queen. I'm staring you down. I'll take your queen with and my rook. you're taking me and... Yeah, this is... I see where this is going to go, though. I'm taking your rook with my pawn on e2. All right. I'll guard my knight. All right. Another promotion. Her Royal Highness. Her Royal Highness, the queen. How did you promote? Pawn takes f1. Promoted to queen. Ah! I'll take your queen back, but man, I'm down a pawn now compared to you and I, I i you're in a much better position as well okay the queen is dead long long live the queen <laughs> we had a coronation now we got to plan the funeral it's just it's all so much <laughs> all right let, let's end, let's end here that was a short they, they didn't even have time to change the stamps all right we'll pause we'll pause the nation is in mourning you might pretend like you're in mourning because you lost a queen but i think i've lost the game so i think i'm in mourning there's just so much death and destruction involved in every game of chess. It really is. Truly. So another aspect of the book discussed in the introduction is Zweig's use of what Mr. Peter Gay calls a secondary narrator. Yeah. One of the most significant parts of the book, the part we were just discussing about Dr. B's descent into chess mania. <laughs> is reported to the narrator of the book in dialogue, not told sure. by the narrator. What effect did this have on you as a reader? I absolutely adored it because, like you said, he sort of comes up as like a revealed attack at a chess game. And then mm-hmm. quite often I see when you do like a revealed check, then it becomes that piece just completely following that king around. It, it, it's like it's it, there's a hunt and it's all focused on that particular thing now Mm -hmm. 
It's a game changer. It's it's a real game changer. And I love the way it turns from like the narrator's book to Dr. B's book. And we have to completely understand why this new character is here, what's his importance, and how he's going to play against Shenovich at the end. And hearing him tell his own story in dialogue mm-hmm. is a way of grabbing you. It really does. Zweig just kind of grabs you by, by your tie you buy your chess piece tie, your, your checker tie, and he just pulls you. He's like, look, the Gestapo pulled me from my office. And you're like, damn, wow. And you, you just, it, it. what we were saying before, it's part of how, part of the genius of the book, part of the strategy of the book, part of the mm-hmm. entertainment. Truly. This book is a, a wonderful blend of entertainment and literary intellectualist merit yeah intellectual play i just i don't know how this book isn't about 834 pages long why is that just because of what it does there's just it's i feel like it's so dense and it's Mm. just 80 pages i don't know how he does it how does he have a second story with a beginning, a middle, an end of yeah. a whole other separate character that is introduced halfway through? That feels like it could be a whole book of its own. And it's still just 80 pages. It's that efficiency. It's amazing. I love this book. Every sentence has so much packed into it. Mm-hmm. He is thinking 510 moves ahead. Just like you did with my game here. Not so much. I, I, I'm i going to move on to the final question. Okay. Because this book is really propulsive and exciting, is because it's sort of short, and because it has this compressed timeline of just a couple days in an isolated mm. setting, as, as far as the main part of the story goes, mm-hmm. it's, it's on a steamer from New York to Buenos Aires. Yes. Why does Zweig place the chess game in these surroundings? Yeah, I found this to be one of the most fascinating aspects of it. I think because Buenos Aires is one of those cities that, though it is in Latin America, and it's one of the biggest cultural centers of Latin America, it looks very much to Europe for its inspiration. Uh South America has long been a place where people could escape and start another life. Uh I I remember some story about, oh, some marquee, like, some aristocrat from like Belgium or something uh-huh. shot someone for taking an apple from his orchard. Sure. And then just like escaped to Buenos Aires and then became a famous ethnographer documenting uncontacted peoples. You know, like it's it's this place where fancy lads from the continent <laughs> can continue on with their criminality like outside of yeah sure the code of authority and then also when you when you look back on world war ii we know that so many of the the rat lines led to argentina led to brazil led to different parts of south america mm-hmm. zweig escapes there you also have huge numbers of um Jewish immigrants in a city like buenos uh-huh. aires there i think there's a kosher still there's a kosher mcdonald's and, Do you uh, have uh, any experience with Buenos Aires, Cassia? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I lived there for, for a few months. But um, also, you have Perón, yeah. who had very complex politics, not easy to categorize, but definitely was okay <laughs> with fascists. <laughs> <laughs> 
and was fine with welcoming them into his country. So you, so you have Dr. B, who's a victim, mm-hmm. but then you also have the perpetrators coming yeah. to that city. So it's a Later city on, of, and this is post-Vig. This is post, but it's, it's all in the air. He's living in Brazil when he's writing this. Yeah, it's true. So you have so much richness to that context. And then also, I love an ocean liner story. Like, I think that's just, that's a big thing you see in like old movies. Mm-hmm. I love um, one-way passage. There's so many oh, great, like- History piece. is made at night. History is made at night. So many TCM movies because- Talk, Talking about uh, Ocean's Eleven, but Soderbergh did another ocean liner movie recently- in like in like COVID protocols, he put Meryl really? Streep, D- Diane Weist, and Candice Bergen on a boat, and it was like what, M- Meryl Streep's like an author, and they like interact and like learn about the past and stuff of each other. What does that setting provide you with? Several things. People are isolated, so your characters yeah. are contained Have together, to. and then you have all kinds of strangers from different backgrounds, different nationalities that can yeah. come into collision with one another. Yeah, it's a really great way to put it, place a book. Right. And in those old movies, William Powell, K. Francis, you know, you can have a, a, a gorgeous <laughs> woman in her gown billowing on the wind on the Lido deck or whatever. It looks so good. You can have the romance. And then you also, there's always some criminal hiding yeah. in the boiler room. Sure. So it's a great place for atmosphere and for hijinks and... There's something from classical drama, the three unities, mm. unity of place, unity of time, unity of action. Sure. And a perfect drama has those three unities. And this book yeah, gotcha. subscribes subscribes to that. Yeah. It, I think it, it t- takes a little bit more than 24 hours, so it's not, it's not perfect, but... Fair enough. All right. You want to finish up this game? Yeah. Okay. All right. Oh, it's looking real empty now. All right, so it's your move. I just took on F one. Oh yeah. Okay. You. I remember. I rem- I'm, I'm remembering now. The death. The death. Yeah. Never forget. Never forget. <laughs> All right. I'm just gonna bide my time here. King to G seven. All right. I'll try to get my king up to E two. Mm, okay. King to F seven. All right. King to E three. At least guarding that pawn now. We're just kind of sharks in the water. We're just swimming around. Looking mm-hmm. at each other. Where are you? I just moved to E3. Okay, let's go to E6. Yeah, you're guarding King that, that e pawn on the, D, on the D file. I will go E4. Good old E4. Just edging closer. Mm-hmm. I will go to D5, pawn to D5, and check you. All right. I think this is game. I can't get either of these two pawns promoted because you're blocking me. I don't think I can take them because your king can guard them. And even if I try to go attack them, this pawn will get promoted on the D file at that point. I think this is it for me. So I, I'm going to resign. You're going to resign. I'm going to resign. Are you serious? Yes. Can I get that in writing? I mean... <laughs> sure. So so, so if you resign, you if you abdicate, does that mean I... Does that mean... You win. I, I, I win. Don't run this in any more than you need to. Okay. Do we need to tell them the truth, Dylan? We have a bit of a twist ending here. We actually haven't been playing this chess game as ourselves this whole time. Oh, no. What? This is actually one of the famous games referenced in Chess Story between F.M. Boyabov and Alexander Alekhine. 
And you were playing... As Boyabov and you were playing... And I'm Alakine. So I didn't really win, unfortunately. How did it feel to win as Alakine? How did it feel? Transcendent? Gratifying? <laughs> humbling? Oh, God. Humbling? <laughs> gratifying? How did it feel to lose? <laughs> as Boyabov? Okay, this was a thing. Is they reference part of the Boyabov Alakine game in the book... We tried so hard to find a game that had this aspect in it so we could play this one. We never fully found it, but we decided to still play one of the games as well. So here, you can... So this is the part of the book where Dr. B reveals himself, right? Yeah, as we revealed our... Dr. B is is just kind of observing these other passengers on the boat play the world champion. And he pipes up and he's like, no, 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 no. If you make a queen now, he'll take her immediately with bishop to c1, and you'll take his bishop with your knight. But he'll be moving his free pawn to d7 to threaten your rook. And even if you check with your knight, you'll lose. You'll be done for in nine or ten moves. It's almost the same as the combination that Alakine introduced against Bogolyabov in the Pisyon Grand Tournament of 1922. <laughs> so we actually played, we found the Pisyon Tournament of 1922, but it did not I, involve I, promoting queens. This so one did. We played person... another tournament between these two, uh, Hastings. In, in 1922. In, in, in 22. So we did what we could for the community. Yeah. Are there any other points that you wanted to mention? No, I feel like I'm good. There was one thing when Dr. B is in the hotel. It really made me think about this book that came out several years ago about the, the Frankfurt School thinkers mm-hmm. called Grand Hotel Abyss. Okay. So the Frankfurt School included all of these German intellectuals who gathered together partially to under try to understand the rise of fascism. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them s- did the kind of studying that we talked about with the Milgram experiment, similar authoritarian okay. tests. Or like analyzing culture, like I think Adorno moved to Los Angeles and would review the horoscopes in the newspaper and like talk about how this reflected modern ills. (laughs) Sure. Very similarly, like Walter Benjamin committed suicide. Oh, God. But there were there were a lot of these thinkers who were in this milieu, in this zeitgeist, who were trying to rationalize something that seems so irrational Mm -hmm. and it is interesting to me that this this um collective biography of all of them was called grand hotel abyss that that could be the title of this book is like he kind of grand he's in this grand hotel but he's he's facing the abyss yeah so that would be an interesting thing to reread in pairing with this book awesome Thank you for listening to Unburied Books. Please join us again in two weeks when we discuss In the Cafe of Lost Youth by Patrick Mariano. And please rate and review our podcast on your usual platform that you listen to us on. It'll always help us out the more we can get that. And also check out our digital bookshop. Yeah, there's a there's a link to that below. Yes. Follow us on Twitter. Follow us on Instagram. Follow us on Goodreads. Follow us on Goodreads if you can stand to look at that website. Feel free to rate and review us on not your usual platform. If you're a Spotify person and you want to dip into Apple, you go right ahead. We're not going to stop you. All right. Bye. Bye. Happy, happy child.
when we 